Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, February 4th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The Pentagon says it's tracking an alleged Chinese spy balloon. A U.S. labor report finds that 517,000 jobs were created in January. Ukraine and the EU hold a summit in Kyiv. Brazil's former president is accused of planning the January 8th riots. The Pope arrives in South Sudan. U.S. lawmakers call for Azerbaijan to end its blockade in Nagomo-Karabakh. The trial over Elon Musk's Tesla tweets heads to closing statements. Swiss prosecutors probe Credit Suisse's dirty money leak. A Guantanamo detainee is freed to Belize. And the U.S. proposes new rules to limit sugar in school meals. In our top story, the Pentagon is tracking an alleged Chinese spy balloon. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Wire, Al Jazeera, ABC News, CBS, CNN, and Independent. The U.S. Pentagon on Thursday said it was monitoring what it suspects to be a high-altitude Chinese surveillance balloon over the U.S. mainland. China claims it is a civilian airship for, quote, research, mainly meteorological purposes, that had blown off course. U.S. defense officials say the balloon passed over sensitive areas, allegedly to collect intelligence, and was spotted over the U.S. state of Montana, where some 150 silos for intercontinental ballistic missiles are located at Malmstrom Air Force Base. To avoid endangering people with falling debris, the U.S. military reportedly advised against shooting down the object, which has been observed by the U.S. Air Force for several days and is estimated to be the size of three buses. The Pentagon says it was confident that it was a surveillance balloon flying at an altitude above commercial air traffic and that it originated in China but did not pose a military or physical threat. The news of the alleged spy balloon prompted U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken to postpone his upcoming visit to China, with one U.S. military official saying the incident was serious not due to intelligence gains but simply the audacity of China. Pentagon officials say that the balloon was a violation of U.S. sovereignty and the balloon will likely remain over the continental U.S. through the weekend. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts of that story here on our podcast. We like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. We do have quite a few spins on this story. Our pro-China narrative is brought to us by China Daily. Stories about the alleged Chinese spy balloon are mushrooming, providing fertile ground for spreading the Chinese threat narrative. In the age of surveillance satellites, the assumption that Beijing is resorting to easily detectable balloons is absurd. The catchy revelation is primarily about undermining constructive China-U.S. dialogue, and it is the U.S. that is second to none in terms of using spy techniques on the PRC. Fox News is giving us an anti-China narrative. Since everything points to it being a Chinese spy balloon, the Biden administration must abandon its soft stance toward Beijing and respond decisively. With its blatant disregard for U.S. territorial integrity, Beijing continues to fuel tensions, which is why Blinken's China trip needed to be canceled. This is a pivotal moment for Biden's leadership as well. The GOP is watching closely for a strong response. And there's also a cynical narrative, and it's provided by Breaking Defense. In recent years, similar incidents have occurred time and again. Should the object prove to be a spy balloon, however, 
China would by no means be the only country that has recently explored the upper regions of the atmosphere for surveillance purposes via stratospheric balloons or high-altitude drones. The development of this technology is also being driven forward in the U.S. Situations like this are not unusual, despite the hype. This story has also generated a nerd narrative, and it says there is a 10% chance that there will be active warfare between the U.S. and China before the year 2027, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. You know, what if it turned out that this just happened to be a uh, a gender reveal gone wrong? <laughs> exactly. That's what I was thinking. Like a uh, Yeah, a Chinese gender reveal, you know? <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. A recent U.S. labor report says that 517,000 jobs have been created in January. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Finance, Fox News, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal. On Friday, the U.S. Department of Labor's latest jobs report showed that 517,000 new jobs were created last month, far exceeding the expectations of most economists. Even after the December 2022 jobs report was revised, it showed just 260,000 jobs created. At the same time, the unemployment rate fell to 3.4%, its lowest point since 1969. In its continued effort to recover from the COVID pandemic, the leisure and hospitality sector saw the greatest increase in jobs, adding 128,000 workers in January. Bars and restaurants led the way with 98.6 thousand workers added in that sector, while hotel jobs increased by 14,800. Stocks dropped by more than 100 points in reaction to the job news because the hot labor market is expected to encourage the U.S. Federal Reserve to continue to raise its benchmark interest rate. This news indicates that increased job growth may increase consumer spending and wages, putting additional pressure on inflation, which has retreated from a 40-year peak but still remains high. In announcing a quarter-point hike in its benchmark rate earlier this week, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said there could be some additional rate hikes in the future. The next Fed meeting will be in March. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story, and it has generated a couple of spins. We begin with a Republican narrative coming from Breitbart. The Fed's plan to bring inflation down to 2% is failing. Raising interest rates to cool the economy and create less demand for labor isn't working. It can take some solace that wage increases have slowed by a small percentage, but that's not likely to continue. A new approach is needed. And NPR has provided a Democratic narrative. We have to look at the positives. Since Biden took office, the economy has added a record 12.1 million jobs. There have been fewer layoffs than expected because employers are expecting the economy to bounce back later in the year and don't want to risk being shorthanded. These are promising economic times for the U.S. Eric, do you think uh, possibly the, the, the rate of increase in January is so high because maybe people are making New Year's resolutions to stop being lazy and get to work? <laughs> well, possibly so, but I'm not in that group. Sorry. Oh, Because you, you, you're always, you, <laughs> you, just, you just decided to stay lazy. You're happy with it? I decided. Absolutely. Very happy. That's, that's good. You accepted, you accepted the type of person that you are. Exactly. Well, you know. Denial is a river in... Denial is more than a river in Egypt. That's right. 
The conflict in Ukraine continues as we look at day 345, as European leaders say Ukraine's future is in the EU, as they decline to set a timeline. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Politico, MinaFN.com, TASS, and Ukraine Forum. Following the first EU-Ukraine summit since the start of the invasion, held in Kyiv on Friday, European Union officials have stated that Ukraine's future is in the EU, while European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen praised Ukraine for the reforms that it has implemented as it aims to join the EU. However, although Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has made the case for a speedy acceptance of its application, EU officials refuse to be drawn into discussing timelines. One senior EU diplomat told The Guardian, quote, There is no fast track. The path for any candidate country is a long one. They added, continuing, Ukraine is no exception here. This comes as the U.S. on Friday announced another $2.2 billion in aid for Ukraine, which will include the longer-range ground-launched small-diameter bomb, as well as spare parts and munitions for air defense systems. It does not include, however, the much-coveted and even longer-range Army tactical missile systems, which Washington fears would be used to attack Russian territory. Meanwhile, Ukraine's Office for the Prosecutor General has reportedly filed criminal charges against Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Russian mercenary group Wagner PMC. Prigozhin was charged with encroaching on the territorial integrity and inviolability of Ukraine and waging a war of aggression against Ukraine. On the ground, a car bomb killed a police officer in the Russian-controlled city of Enerhodar in Zaporizhia on Friday. Russian officials said in a statement, preliminarily, it has been established that as a result of the blast, an employee of the Territorial Body of Internal Affairs was killed. They added that the incident was being investigated. In the meantime, in Russian attacks over the past day, two civilians were killed and nine more were injured in the Kherson region, while two civilians were killed and one was injured in the Kharkiv region. Attacks were also reported in the regions of Sumy and Dnipropetrovsk, without reports of civilian casualties. On Friday, officials also said that the death toll from an earlier attack on Kramatorsk in Donetsk has risen to four. Eric, thank you for the update on the facts in Ukraine. We have a couple of narrative spins here. We have a narrative A, which is provided by Telegraph. The EU may want Kyiv to become a member state, but the prospect of Ukraine's membership generates a myriad of challenges for the bloc concerning money and constitutional reform. The change could see the EU on the hook for hundreds of billions of euros in funding and aid for Ukraine, an unattractive prospect even when the hopeful nation isn't expecting immediate conflict. Kyiv can't just skip the queue ahead of nations like Turkey. It must face the stringent but necessary application process in full. Narrative B is coming from The Hill. While lengthy reform is needed in both Ukraine and the EU before Kyiv can join the bloc, member states must avoid dragging their feet over enlargement policy. It may be perceived by some as jumping the line, but the current conflict and Ukraine's recent sacrifices justify its place as a priority for EU membership. Funding from the bloc is not just an irritation for Western countries. It will make them integral to the reinvigoration of Ukraine's economy and infrastructure and tie Kyiv closer to the West. Safety and prosperity in Ukraine benefits the whole EU. And the Nerds of Metaculus have an opinion on this story. They say there's a 40% chance that Ukraine will join the EU before 2030. He'll be known as uh, Zelensky from the block. Zelensky from the block. Yeah. I wonder what kind of a block party they have after someone's been welcomed into the club. 
Yeah, and where do they set up the blockades? Like, do they have, you know, they kind of all meet in Poland, maybe? Or... Yes, 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 Poland. Block party in Poland. Whoop, whoop. Yep. And news out of Brazil, where Lula says that Bolsonaro planned the riots. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Guardian, France 24, and La Prensa Latina Media. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, speaking in an interview with broadcaster Ready TV on Thursday, accused predecessor Jair Bolsonaro of actively participating in planning the storming of government offices on January 8th. The news came on the same day that Senator Marcos Duval claimed he was invited to a meeting by former Bolsonaro ally to discuss overturning the far-right leader's election loss. Duval alleged that the meeting took place on December 9th with the offer extended by Congressman Daniel Silveira. According to Duvall, the alleged plan was to induce and record Supreme Court Justice Alexandre de Mores, the head of Brazil's electoral authority, saying something compromising to prevent Lula from being sworn in. Bolsonaro backers have blamed Moraes for rigging the ballot in Lula's favor. Duvall initially told Veja magazine that it was Bolsonaro that presented the alleged plot to him before changing his tune and claiming that the former president remained silent during the meeting. Bolsonaro, who has yet to acknowledge his election defeat, is being investigated by Brazil's Supreme Court for any potential role he played in the riots and has resided in Florida since late December. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Three spins emerging beginning with the left narrative coming from the Brazilian report. Even if the coup failed, accountability for what happened in Brazil is not only a matter of justice, but is also crucial for the future of the country's democracy. The current investigation is likely to reveal a coordinated, multi-pronged attempt by Bolsonaro and his accomplices to undermine the election's result. Despite the many similarities to the U.S. Capitol riots, the political influence of Brazil's military cannot be underestimated. And this is a concern that politicians must confront in the future. And left narratives are typically followed up by right narratives. This one was prepared by System Update. The January 8th storming of government buildings was relatively nonviolent, despite the damage to the building interiors, with no grave injuries or deaths. And Bolsonaro never encouraged his supporters to gather that day, let alone attempt to stage a military coup. Mainstream media is promoting a conspiracy that doesn't exist, while ignoring that Brazilians are fully capable of protesting and distrusting institutions without being guided by U.S. politicians. The nerd narrative for this story says that there's a 10% chance that former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro will be extradited back to Brazil before leaving the U.S., according to the Metaculous Prediction community. The Pope arrives in South Sudan for a pilgrimage of peace. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, New York Times, Reuters, Vatican News, and Voice of America. Pope Francis arrived in South Sudan on Friday to encourage a peaceful end to the country's conflict that has been ongoing for a decade and has taken the lives of hundreds of thousands and displaced millions. The Pope's arrival, accompanied by the head of the Anglican Communion and the leader of the Church of Scotland, is part of a broader African tour to call attention to conflict in the region that saw him visit the Democratic Republic of Congo earlier this week. This is the Pope's first visit to South Sudan since it won its independence from Sudan in 2011. A civil war erupted two years earlier, and despite a 2018 peace deal, clashes across political and ethnic lines have continued in the region. 
The Pope previously expressed interest in traveling to the predominantly Christian country, but was unable to because of the pandemic as well as ongoing instability in the country. Instead, in April 2019, the Pope hosted a spiritual retreat at the Vatican for South Sudan's political and faith leaders. Ahead of Pope Francis's Friday visit, tit-for-tat violence broke out between cattle farmers and militia fighters in central Equatoria state. Government officials announced that between the two groups, at least 27 people have died, including five children and a pregnant woman. This comes as the Troika embassies made up of the U.S., Britain, and Norway, security guarantors for the transitional government, warned of new conflict taking place in parts of the country. Amid the security concerns, the government announced 5,000 security officers to ensure calm during the Pope's visit to Juba. Thank you, Eric, for the update on those facts. We have a Narrative A spin provided by Washington Post. This is a historical event in the making. Violence in the region has gone on for far too long. As a majority Christian country, the Pope is a highly respected figure, and hopefully he will be the catalyst needed for political and faith leaders in South Sudan to bring peace and stability to the nation. Narrative B comes from Pillar Catholic. While this is an important trip, it's more symbolic than significant, as the Pope's visit alone will not bring the much-needed change to South Sudan. Besides just talking about peacemaking, this visit needs to be accompanied by an overhaul in leadership. Until then, politicians will continue to act in their own interests with no regard for those whose lives they impact. And there's also a narrative C on this story, and it's provided by the UN News. While there's still a long way to go, the young nation of South Sudan has been making progress. In February 2022, the transitional government celebrated two years of the revitalized government of National City. Leaders' work continues to stabilize regions enough that ceasefire remains active. The civilian death toll is decreasing by a significant measure, and democracy is in motion as government positions at the national and state level are being filled. Eric, I've got a little bit of concern here. This, This violence that broke out between the cattle farmers and the militia fighters in central Equatoria, and it's, shouldn't that have been, if the cattle farmers weren't involved, shouldn't that have been called a, a teat for tat fight? Uh, you know, I was ex- thinking the exact same thing, teat for tat. <laughs> U.S. lawmakers call for an end of Azerbaijan's blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, PBS NewsHour, Reuters, and Congressman Brad Sherman. A group of U.S. congressional lawmakers called on Azerbaijan to end the blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh as the area remains cut off from critical supplies for a 53rd day. Representatives Adam Schiff, the Democrat from California, and Frank Poulain Jr., the Democrat from New Jersey, joined protesters at the Capitol on Thursday urging the U.S. to hold Azerbaijan accountable. Azerbaijan and neighboring Armenia are in dispute over a four-mile road called the Lachin Corridor, which connects the two countries in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. Azeri protesters have been allegedly blocking the road since mid-December, threatening food supplies to the 120,000 people in the region. Armenia told the International Court of Justice on Monday that Azerbaijan's blockade of the corridor was designed to allow ethnic cleansing of the area. At the hearing, Armenia requested the court, also known as the World Court, to order Azerbaijan to lift the blockade. Azerbaijan has denied any blockade, instead insisting that environmental activists are conducting a legitimate protest. 
However, officials in the region have begun to institute a rationing system for dwindling food and supplies. Last week, Representative Brad Sherman, the Democrat from California, held a press conference along with the Armenian National Committee of America and advocacy group in defense of Christians demanding immediate action in Azerbaijan's brutal blockade. The conflict comes just two years after Azerbaijan and Armenia ended a war that killed roughly 6.8 thousand soldiers and displaced about 90 thousand civilians. Tensions have remained high between the two nations. Thank you, Adam, for those facts. Narrative A is our first spin. It's coming from Armenian Weekly. The international community is right to condemn Azerbaijan's cruel blockade. Starting from since December 12, 2022, Azerbaijan's government began this operation designed to deprive the 120,000 Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh of food, gas, and medicine. This is a tragic abuse of human rights, and Azerbaijan's blockade must end immediately. And as media provides narrative B, Armenia is manipulating the emotions of the world trying to represent a legitimate and peaceful environmental protest as somehow an inhumane blockade. On February 1st alone, over 1,200 cars passed through the Lachin Corridor in both directions. This issue is being misrepresented to the world and U.S. lawmakers. Elon Musk making the news with his trial over Tesla tweets as it heads to closing statements. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBC, Reuters, Fox 13 News Memphis, and Associated Press. The trial against Elon Musk by Tesla Incorporated shareholders, who claim he deceived them when he tweeted that he had secured funding to take the company private, will be ending soon, with the plaintiff's lawyer making his closing statement on Friday. Shareholders say that Musk misled them on August 7, 2018, by tweeting that he had the funding to and was considering taking Tesla private at $420 per share, a 23% premium to its then last closing price and valuing the company at $72 billion. Musk's appearance comes as the CEO is under pressure at Tesla amid increasing competition and at Twitter to reverse significant revenue losses. Musk insisted in court that he safeguarded shareholders' best interests and believed he had a commitment from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, which recanted after his funding-secured tweet. He added that he also could have gotten funding from selling some of his stock in SpaceX. If the nine-person jury presiding over the trial decides to hold Musk liable for misleading Tesla shareholders, Musk and Tesla would have to pay billions in damages. The jury is set to begin its deliberations after the closing arguments end. Musk has already had to pay the Securities and Exchange Commission $40 million in a settlement regarding his tweets, though he has since claimed that he entered into the settlement under duress. What, he wore a dress? He wore a dress. Oh, how cute. Thank you, Eric. Narrative A on this story is provided by Times Now News. Elon Musk's tweets were fraudulent. He intentionally posted untrue information in an attempt to squeeze investors who had bet against the company. Musk acted and continues to act recklessly and needs to be held accountable for his actions, especially in this case, as his irresponsibility lost countless investors their money. Al Jazeera gives us a narrative B for this story. Musk's tweet was not fraudulent, and he had no ill intent. He simply wanted to inform all shareholders, big and small, of his plans rather than keeping the secret solely among the board and wealthy investors. Musk also knew he could use his wealth from SpaceX to take Tesla private if he needed to, 
He does not deserve to be penalized just because the deal didn't go through. Well, you know one thing about this. No matter what happens in court, we know who knows everything. The Chinese. The Chinese know everything. They That's know everything. Right. They've been watching this. Well, the, I think Elon is a is a, a robot created by the Chinese. I think so, too. <laughs> yeah. You know how they got him over here? How? In a balloon. In a balloon. <laughs> Swiss prosecutors begin a case over a dirty money leak at Credit Suisse. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Digital Journal, Reuters, Malay Mail, and Barron's. Switzerland's Office of the Attorney General, or the OAG, on Thursday announced it had opened a case into last year's massive data leak at Credit Suisse's account records, which a media investigation alleged had showed the bank held more than $8 billion in illicit funds. The leak which exposed 18,000 accounts, including those of human rights abusers, fraudsters, and sanctioned businessmen, covered records dating from the 1940s through the 2010s. It was first shared with Germany's Süddeutsche Zeitung last February, which then shared it worldwide. The OAG's criminal charges, reportedly brought by an anonymous source from inside the bank, include violation of the country's banking secrecy laws, damage to the bank, and the communication of confidential business information to foreign organizations or their agents. The original media investigation, which was conducted in coordination with the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, also spotlighted that Article 47 of Switzerland's 2015 Banking Act carries a maximum sentence of five years in prison if insiders or journalists try to expose wrongdoing within a Swiss bank. The leak was covered by 48 media companies globally. However, no Swiss media took part in the story, reportedly out of fear of being criminally prosecuted under the banking law. Regarding the formal complaint to the OAG, the Swiss daily Tagesanzeiger cited sources which claim the complaint came from the bank itself. The claims are coming from inside the bank! Two spins emerging from this story. The establishment critical narrative is the first one coming from The Guardian. Switzerland's banking secrecy laws, along with their exploitation by the world's elite to conceal their wealth, have been common knowledge for centuries. Though the government has claimed it no longer conducts these tax evasion schemes, last year's data leak and the recent banking secrecy law seem to prove otherwise. Hopefully, this case will see the days of monarchs and oligarchs stashing their dirty money in the Alps finally come to an end. And there's a pro-establishment narrative provided by Fi News. Most of the accounts uncovered in this leak have been or are in the process of being closed. This seemingly biased and coordinated attack against Credit Suisse fails to acknowledge that Switzerland has cooperated with 100 other countries under the Automatic Exchange of Information since 2017, an agreement the U.S. isn't even a part of. Journalists and global NGOs should update their facts to reflect Switzerland and its bank's tremendous progress. How many Swiss bank accounts do you have, Eric? Last, the last count, I had six. Yeah? Yeah. They each have a dollar in them. <laughs> Man, that you know that's 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 growing every year exponentially. You're getting like what is that 0.08 percentage of that dollar every year? Somebody in my uh, family will be rich one day. About six generations from now. That's right. <laughs> A Guantanamo detainee has been freed to Belize 
And here are the facts as agreed upon by Stars and Stripes, New York Times, Yahoo News, and BBC News. Majid Khan, a former al-Qaeda courier turned U.S. government witness, has been transferred from the U.S.-run detention facility in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to Belize, nearly a year after he finished his sentence. Khan, who was captured in Pakistan in 2003, was initially held at secret overseas CIA black sites, where he endured brutal interrogation methods, including waterboarding, beatings, and sleep deprivation, before being sent to Guantanamo. Khan, in 2012, struck a plea deal that required him to plead guilty to war crimes, including murder and spying, and vow to never sue the U.S. government. A military jury suggested a lenient sentence because of what he endured. According to a U.S. official, Khan waited a year before his release, largely due to difficulty finding a country to take him. Federal law prohibits detainees from being resettled in the U.S., and there are other legal constraints preventing the repatriation of certain detainees to their home countries. Born in Saudi Arabia and raised in Pakistan, Khan moved to Maryland with his family as a teenager. He confessed to joining al-Qaeda following a trip to Pakistan in 2002. According to U.S. officials, there are still 34 detainees at Guantanamo Bay, including 20 who are eligible for transfer. A handful of others are under review. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We have a Democratic narrative provided by Washington Post. This is a milestone in Biden's attempt to resettle all the Guantanamo prisoners and close the book on an era of human rights mistakes. It's been a challenge finding ways to do this in the face of restrictive U.S. laws and tentative foreign countries. But this is a step in the right direction towards emptying the prison. Daily Wire is giving us a Republican narrative for this story. Prisoners at Guantanamo are dangerous terrorists, and they shouldn't be given the opportunity to return to the battlefield. Should Biden actually try to shut down Guantanamo, he risks not only a partisan backlash, but also the safety and security of U.S. allies. And there's also a nerd narrative on this story that says there's a 50% chance that the U.S. will close the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center by December of 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Maybe yes, maybe no. We're going to toss a coin. It all comes out in the wash. Who wants to stay in Guantanamo? Raise your hand. <laughs> That's right. Let's, let's see a show of hands. Yeah, show of hands. One, two, three. Uh, no, maybe next year. Yep. And in our final story today, the U.S. proposes rules to limit sugar in school meals. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Reuters, NPR Online News, Axios, and the Epoch Times. U.S. Agricultural Secretary Tom Vilsack on Friday proposed new standards for the nation's school meal program, which serves breakfast to 15 million children and lunch to 30 million kids every day, including limits on added sugars for the first time ever. The proposal aims to make 80% of the grains served by schools whole grain by the fall of 2024, limits on sodium and high sugar items, including cereals, yogurts, and flavored milks which would take effect by the fall of 2025. Last year, a report from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, showed that added sugar in 92% of school breakfasts and 69% of lunches exceeded the dietary standard that no more than 10% of calories from meals should come from added sugars. Officials are hoping the proposed standards, which will be in a public comment period from February 7th until April 10th, could tackle childhood obesity 
which currently affects 14.4 million people in the U.S. The Centers for Disease and Control Prevention, or the CDC, has also reported that the COVID pandemic caused children and teenagers to gain weight at a higher rate than prior to the pandemic. Thank you, Adam. Our first spin is a narrative A coming from Washington Post. While in theory, this is a good proposal. In practice, it's not. Faced with the current tumultuous economic environment, most schools likely won't be able to implement the regulations. And even if they do, participation in the meal program, which has already been dipping since the COVID-related free meal plans ended, will absolutely sink when kids are faced with strict meals, inadvertently pushing students to even unhealthier foods. And a final narrative B is provided by CNN. Better nutrition in schools is important, and this proposal is a major step toward achieving it. Not only would this tackle childhood obesity, but studies show kids who eat healthier get better grades. Best of all, this plan will be rolled out gradually to give schools time to meet the standards, and there's enough flexibility in it for kids to keep drinking flavored milk and eat the occasional non-whole grain product. I got an idea. Let's take away some of that $80 billion in defense spending and maybe put a billion in our school lunches. I agree. Wouldn't hurt, right? I totally agree. At least buy the kids a protein bar, for Christ's sake. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, February 4th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story... Our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.